This is OBG Project's Grand Rounds Live, a podcast of the OBG Project's monthly webinar featuring cutting-edge OB and GYN topics. Our Grand Rounds Live webinar is free for OBG First members. With an OBG First membership, you have access to the webinar slides, handouts, and future Grand Rounds Live webinars. To learn more about membership and other perks of an OBG First membership, go to obgproject.com forward slash get first. Enjoy the webinar. At the OBG Project, you know that we're passionate about learning opportunities. That's why we have our second trimester Ultrasound Atlas Center. Only available to OBG First members, it includes not just images, but brief summaries, tips, and even links to additional resources. To access the Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas and other amazing benefits, visit obgproject.com forward slash get first to sign up. We've also got a special offer just for our listeners. Two months free off their OBG First subscription. So go to obgproject.com forward slash get first and use the promo code OBGSpotify at checkout. Remember, obgproject.com forward slash get first with the promo code OBGSpotify for two months free. Happy learning. Well, welcome everybody. It's um, a pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Emma Grabinski, who is a general obstetrician gynecologist and Senior Director, Medical Director of Women's Services at Swedish Hospital Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. She's also clinical faculty in obstetrics and gynecology at Washington State University. And Dr. Grabinski is gonna give us the second iteration of coding for OBGYNs. So Dr. Grabinski, welcome. Thank you. Good morning, everybody, Um, or good afternoon where you are. It's uh, still morning on the West Coast. Um, We are going to be talking about um, coding. This is um, coding that um, oftentimes people miss um, as um, a generalist and, and, you know, how we can uh, maximize um, reimbursement for what we're actually doing. Um, I have no disclosures uh, to report, no conflicts of interest. Um, Learning objectives. So today we're going to Um, I'm going to hopefully um, encourage you to all understand why coding and bullying is um, important and learn what is included in common global scenarios and then what you can build outside of the um, global um, bundle. So what you're commonly missing um, items that you're probably missing in the office and then just a little bit more information about where to find some more resources. So next slide, please. So um, this is just a little bit of information about why I think that coding and billing is super important. Um, I came out of residency with very little information about um, how to bill and code appropriately, as I'm sure most of us did, um, and really just kind of got interested in it because um, my mantra in life is we work hard enough and we should be working smarter, not harder. Um, And, you know, it's it's. I'm sure all of us have heard and read the studies that show, unfortunately, that women are um, really undervalued in terms of, um, you know, pay equity. Um, So this is just a couple of um, studies that have been published. um, And these studies have actually been adjusted for factors such as hours worked, clinical revenue, practice type and specialty. Um, And so knowing that, you know, we estimated um, 2 million loss over our our life careers um, when compared to um, male physicians. Um, On average, male doctors make um, 24% more revenue treating each patient than female doctors do. Um, Some of the studies that have been done uh, showed that they bill more procedures um, and see on average more patients, Um, but in, they actually spend less time with patients um, than female doctors do. Um, And this is um, super important for OBGYN physicians as a whole because more than 80% of OBGYNs in the United States are female. Um, And so as a specialty, we're really represented by, um, you know, being female and being underpaid. And this um, last study on the right, which looked at a comparison of gynecologic 
um, surgeons and gynecologic oncologists versus um, urology CPT coding um, basically shows that um, we are um, really, really undervalued in terms of reimbursement. Next slide, please. So, um, you know, coating and billing, <clears throat> excuse me, is extremely important. You are responsible for ensuring that you document code and bill correctly. Um, and, you know, even if you do have a code or a biller that is looking over, um, looking over your information, you are ultimately responsible. Um, it's only by documenting um, and coding and billing appropriately that we can actually demonstrate our worth. Um, and if we don't value ourselves, then it's hard to, um, you know, expect other people to do. Um, for most of us, for coding and billing, it means um, recognizing two different um, entities, which is the IDCD, ICD-10, which is the diagnostic codes. Um, this identifies the medical condition that you're seeing the patient for um, and um, basically uh, tells people why you're doing what you're doing. The CPT codes, which stands for um, Current Procedural Terminology Codes, um, basically documents what you did. So it tells um, the, the reimbursers what the diagnostic or therapeutic procedure was. Um, and your diagnosis must support the necessity of the procedure. Um, other reasons why coding and billing is important in my uh, mind is that it's important for sustainability in our specialty. We need to make sure that we can um, pay our overheads um, and, and you know, get reimbursed for what we're doing. Um, as patients are becoming more complex, we're doing more and more work, um, and we do deserve to be compensated for our time. Um, and then, like I said, you are responsible for what you code, and you're liable for all codes billed under your provider ID. Um, and so it's really important that you understand what is being billed under your provider ID. Um, just as a caveat, so not all payers will reimburse for everything that we're discussing today. Um, and so it is important that you stay in contact with your um, billing department um, so that you're aware of what you are being reimbursed for. And next slide. Um, this is an interesting article um, that I, I read recently. and. Um, this was looking at Medicare reimbursement specifically, and again, it was adjusted for productivity experience level and the number of patients um, that were being seen. Um, and it was equal for male and female providers when they adjusted it um, and still was found that, um, that there were a significant um, discrepancy in uh, reimbursement based on gender of the um, provider. And um, Dr. Desai's conclusion at the end of this study was that women code differently from men. Um, and so, again, the aim of today is to try and make sure that we are um, coding appropriately for what we do. So next slide. So um, global services, I'm sure that most of us are aware of, you know, the existence of global services and what it means. Um, so global um, OB services is basically the bundle um, which um, we get paid at the end after a patient's delivered for all of the antepartum, intrapartum, and postpartum care that we provide. Um, obviously, if patients are transferring care or um, moving to a different provider, um, or if they're delivered from somebody else, the global will get broken up. Um, but you can um, see that the, the description of the global OB services is that services that are normally provided in uncomplicated maternity care. And so um, it's really this code was built with the lowest OB risk patient um, uh, possible. And so, you know, think about your, you know, really easy um, OB patient. And this is what the, the global service was um, based on. It roughly assumes um, 11 um, visits of, um, sorry, 13 visits, 11 being at about a 99213, so a moderate complexity office visit, and two at a high complexity office visit um, for the um, initial and then the end um, part of the, the global, um, so the, the first prenatal visit and the postpartum visit. Um, and the global um, surgical services um, is typically um, all the necessary services performed by the surgeon or your group, whoever's under your same tax ID, um, before, during, and after the procedure. I'm going to go through this a little bit more, um, you know, uh, later on in this presentation. 
Um, but again, think about this as your simple, straightforward case that goes well. And next slide. So for global OB services, um, and the codes listed at the top there basically are for um, the globals for uh, vaginal delivery, a global C-section, um, a global um, VBAC, and a global C-section after a failed TOLAC. Um, and again, this is um, based on low-risk healthy patients. Um, antipartum care is typically assumed to be between eight to 13 prenatal visits. Um, included in the global is the delivery care, which is the admission, um, basically everything that you do um, in the inpatient setting, and then the routine um, outpatient follow-up care. And it's important to note that um, some providers may, some insurance um, or reimbursers may require a minimum number of um, visits in order for you to um, bill a global code. So again, you should um, look at your billers and coders to be able to give you this information. Um, it's commonly seven visits for most um, reimbursers uh, for you to be able to bill a global. Um, and, you know, again, we're going to be going through a few of these codes a little bit later on, um, but I just want to point out that um, the Routine outpatient care for follow-up includes one visit for a vaginal delivery and two visits for a C-section. And for the delivery care, um, it includes induction of labor using IV meds only, so that would be oxytocin. Um, for a vaginal delivery, that could include an, um, treatment and care of an episiotomy, vacuum, or forceps delivery. Um, and then for the inpatient care for after a delivery, um, it includes two days worth of hospital rounding, so one day of hospital rounding and one day of discharge for a vaginal delivery and three days um, for the C-section. Um, and again, this is something that we're going to be discussing how to um, capture those more complicated patients. So next slide. So um, these are cases where you would want to be billing outside of the global. So these are things that are specifically excluded from the global OB setting. So any outpatient services unrelated to the pregnancy. Um, and this would be, you know, so the patient comes in for a um, evaluation and management visit. So they're not there for their routine OB visit. Um, they come in because, for example, they have um, uh, UTI symptoms and you take a brief history. You may do a urine dipstick. You may send it for a culture. Um, you prescribe antibiotics. Um, those should all be billed as an ENM visit code, so a 99213, 99214, depending on the complexity of the visit, um, but should not be included under the routine OB um, global. And then any procedures that are not um, pertinent to prenatal care. So say your patient had an abnormal pap smear at the beginning of pregnancy and needs a colposcopy, um, you would bill for this um, separately. Um, and then outpatient visits related to the um, pregnancy. So, and again, the caveat is for medically necessary care. You can't just have the patient come in every week so that you can bill for extra visits. But, you know, for our diabetics, for our, you know, chronic hypertensives, for our preeclamptics, um, anybody that is needing to be seen more frequently than 13 prenatal visits, um, those are actually outside of the global. And so you should be billing an ENM visit for, um, for visits over and above the 13 prenatal visits. Now, obviously, this um, may not be obvious that the patient has had more visits until the end. Um, but just for documentation purposes, it's really important that when you're documenting um, your prenatal visits, um, that you're documenting such that you can um, be reimbursed um, any additional visits, um, that they do meet the necessary criteria for um, E&M visits also. Um, so for other antipartum services, um, you know, just a even if you, even if, for example, the patient no shows um, as a, um, a postpartum visit, if you've done the entirety of the prenatal visit, you've delivered the patient, you've rounded on the patient, and you've scheduled them, that would still be a um, a global visit. So um, you should bill based on the component of care that you do and the component of care that you've set up um, the patient for, um, and. Anything um, other than the antipartum testing. So for the 
13 prenatal visits. Um, that only includes, like I said, the E&M visit types. Um, if you're seeing patients for antepartum testing in the office, so non-stress tests or biophysical profiles, um, those are billed separately. So those would not be part of um, the global visits. And next slide. So what can we bill for um, in addition to office visits? So um, like I said, antepartum testing. Um, if you are own, um, providing the equipment, so if you own the NST machine, if you own the ultrasound machine, um, you would bill for the full um, CPT code. So for an NST, um, that's a, a 59025. Um, if you don't own the equipment, and I'm talking about the office, um, there and so for example um you know you may be doing a um a non-stress test in the triage area um then you would bill a modified 26 which is the professional services so it's you basically reading um the the non-stress test or interpreting the non-stress test um and you do have to have um a there are criteria for billing this so you do have to have specific documentation um, and basically, it's the reason why you're doing it. Um, it's um, the baseline, the reactivity, the um, variability, um, presence of decelerations, and then what your follow-up plan is. Um, and then for a biophysical profile, again, if you're reading the biophysical profile, you can bill for that. Um, if a patient is admitted for antepartum testing, um, you can bill for um, multiple times a day. Um, if it's medically necessary. So at least um, two NSTs a day are billable. Um, for the amniotic fluid index, again, if you're reading it, um, you can bill for this for contraction stress tests. You can bill for this. If you are doing a um, ultrasound for a position check, um, you can bill for this. It does have to be documented. Um, and, you know, we can give you, I can give you further information about how to document that. Um, but these are all um, billable services um, that I think commonly are missing. Um, obviously, if we're doing an external cephalic version, we can bill for those. Um, you can actually still bill for it, even if it's unsuccessful. Um, and if you bring a patient in for an external cephalic version um, and it's unsuccessful and you decide you want to try again, you can bill for it a second time. Um, and so definitely document what you do and make sure that we're billing for um, you know, the procedures that we're doing both in the office and in the triage area. Um, amniocentesis obviously is a procedure that we can bill for. Um, and then in terms of hospital admission or observation care, obviously if you're admitting them for, you know, you're not delivering them, you're admitting them because um, they need to be stabilized um, on insulin. They're, uh, you know, an uncontrolled diabetic or um, difficult to control blood pressures and your aim is not to deliver them. So it's not a delivery admission. Um, you will be billing um, either hospital admission or observation stays and then subsequent um, days in the hospital. Um, but I think that one code that we commonly miss is that even if you're admitting them for, say, an, um, an induction of labor and they have a prolonged induction of labor, the global OB um, bundle only includes um, the day prior to delivery. So it includes the admission on the day prior to delivery. So for example, if you um, admit a patient on a Monday for an induction and it's a um, you know, prolonged induction and she delivers on the Thursday, you can bill um, the um, Monday and the Tuesday um, because that is not included in the global OB services. And you should be billing those because those are extra work that you're doing for that patient. And next slide, please. Um, so billing in the OBED or um, triage setting, um, and I think that this is commonly codes that we miss, um, especially if we do have a designated OBED because it's confusing as to what emergency codes um, we bill. Um, but if the if your triage area is designated as an OBED, you should be billing the ED level codes, um, and if you're um, if it's a triage, then you'll be billing um, outpatient codes, which is the the standard um, E and M coding, so nine nine um, you know two or three nine nine two or four nine nine two one three or four um, for your established. Um, I will talk a little bit about um, ED billing a little bit later on, um, but just to let you know that it is based on the 
old um, E&M coding, so you need to meet um, three out of three in terms of the history, the physical examination, and the medical di um, decision making um, to reach a code. Um, ED level codes don't um, um, factor in the difference between if it's a new or established patient. So regardless if it's new for you or an established patient, um, it's the um, the coding is based on the complexity. Um, if you see patients in the OBD or the triage area and then admit them, you cannot bill um, for both the um, the triage or the emergency room evaluation and then the admission because you're the same person, um, unless you're a hospitalist. So if you're working as a hospitalist and they are not your established patients and you are admitting to somebody else, um, the person that is admitting the patient um, who is the taking care of the patient on the inpatient side would um, bill an admit code and you would still bill the OBED or the outpatient evaluation um, visit. So if you are a hospitalist or if you, you know, do take care of other people's patients in the OBED, um, you should be billing those um, visits separately from the admission. Um, and then again, anytime we see those patients um, in the OBED or the triage area, we should be billing for any non-stress tests that we interpret and perform and any ultrasounds that we do. Um, and I know that in some places, um, the nurses will initially evaluate the patients um, in the triage area and you're not seeing them personally. Um, in my institution, we have um, residents who are seeing the um, patients. And so uh, if I don't see the patient, obviously I can't bill um, for the um, evaluation piece. Um, but as long as I read and document on the non-stress test, um, I can still bill for the, the NST. Um, even if I didn't physically see the patient, and um, you should be doing this too. And next slide. So going through to delivery services, there are lots of things that we do um, during delivery that is um, billable um, that we are missing. I think this is probably one of the codes that is um, uh, very, very commonly missed, um, this, this group of codes. Um, so cervical dilator, dilator insertion. Um, most insurances will only pay this um, if the dilator was inserted a day prior to delivery. Um, and most of the time is a calendar day. So again, check with your billers and coders. Um, but in terms of cervical dilator insertion, um, so this would be Cook catheters, Foley catheters that you use for cervical ripening. Um, but it also includes any vaginal um, dilators that you place, such as mesoprostol, um, or um, Dilapan or Laminaria. Um, it has to be you placing it. You can't bill for the nurse placing those um, dilated devices. Um, but if you go in and you put in a vaginal meso on your patient, as long as you document it in the procedure note, um, you can absolutely bill um, for, for that dilator insertion. Um, extensive laceration repairs, again, are not included in the global OB. And so if the patient has a third or a fourth degree um, laceration or an extensive vaginal laceration that requires, um, you know, extensive um, uh, suturing. These are all things, again, that you should be billing for. Um, you have to document the total length of um, the laceration um, in order to bill for this. Um, that is a requirement. Um, and it's um, most of these will be intermediate repairs. Um, and I've just put the code range there. So 12041. Um, and most of them will be 12042, which I believe is up to 7.5 centimeters. Um, but again, you should and um, be billing for those separately. Um, I didn't know this until recently, but if you put an IUPC in for a, the purpose and run an amnio infusion through it, um, you can bill for that. Um, that's a um, separate billable um, service that we're doing. Um, if you're using pudendal blocks, that is a regional anesthesia that's um, completely billable separately from, um, you know, from the global. Um, if you back up family medicine docs or CNMs, um, you should absolutely be billing for those labor consults that you do. We back up um, midwives and family medicine docs and sometimes we'll be called to do a laceration repair or retain placenta or a vacuum or, um, you know, forceps delivery. Um, not only am I billing the procedure that I'm doing, um, but I'm performing a consultation, and so I'm, I'm billing a labor consultation too. 
Um, Bakery balloon is an unlisted procedure. It's the same procedure code you'll note as um, an IUPC placement for an amnioinfusion. There's no specific codes. These are unlisted maternity codes. Um, but again, if we're placing Bakery balloons for um, postpartum hemorrhages, we should be billing for those too. And that's the same for any, um, I know the new JADA system, or if you're packing um, like with, um, uh, if you're packing the uterus instead of, um, you don't have a Bakery balloon, uh, you can bill um, for uh, postpartum hemorrhage management for those patients. Your coders hopefully should be um, catching this, um, but if you deliver um, multiple pregnancies, you should be billing um, a separate delivery only code for the second twin. Um, it comes with a modifier 59 to show that those are unrelated um, you know, services. It's a different service that you're providing for that second baby. You only bill one global and you bill one delivery only. Um, and if you're billing for two C-sections, um, then um, you wouldn't bill the delivery only for the C-section. That's typically a modified 22 um, to show that it's um, increased services. Um, so obviously we're not performing all the tasks for um, a C-section for a second baby. Um, but if you have two vaginal deliveries, you would be billing for a delivery only. Um, and if you bill a vaginal, if you do a vaginal delivery and then unfortunately have to do a C-section of the second twin, um, you should bill the global for the C-section um, because a C-section global is higher reimbursement and then the delivery only fee um, for the vaginal delivery for the primary twin. And next slide. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about inpatient rounding for postpartum services. Um, and so, again, the global assumes the lowest common denominator. So, um, you know, straightforward uh, patients. And so um, for post-delivery rounding, if the patient stays for more than two days, the global assumes um, a one-day round and then a one-day discharge code for a vaginal, two-day rounds and a one-day discharge for a cesarean delivery. If you have complications such as postpartum hemorrhage or preeclampsia or endometritis, um, that's meaning that the patient stays for longer than these, you would bill additional rounding days. Um, you're not going to do um, a discharge because that's already built into the global, but say the patient, say the patient had a C-section and she stays for five days because of preeclampsia, um, you would bill those additional two days of inpatient rounding. For outpatient follow-up visits for postpartum services, um, if you know the patient has complications, such as um, you're seeing them more times because they have blood pressure, um, you know, issues, um, they may have mastitis that you're seeing them for postpartum depression, um, wound infections. Those are all billable separately, um, as long as you're seeing them for more than two visits for the cesarean um, and more than one visit for a vaginal. Um, again, you need to document it in an E&M visit. You can't document it just as under the routine prenatal and sorry, routine postpartum visit. Um, but you should bill an E&M visit for it. Um, and then for postpartum depression screening, some payers will consider this part of the global, especially if you do it on every patient. Uh, however, um, a lot of insurance companies will actually reimburse for this separately. Um, you have to um, use a validated screening tool in order to bill for postpartum depression screening. Uh, we commonly use the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression um, Score. Um, and you must document this in the chart. So whether the patient fills it out and you scan it in, or whether it's built into your EMR um, that you can mark it, but it must be um, separately identifiable um, in the um, in the chart. And you may not get any reimbursement for this. This may be a, a facility reimbursement, um, but if you own your own practice, obviously that goes towards your bottom line. And if you're an employed physician, um, that also, um, in my mind, justifies the need for um, the health of your clinic as a whole. Um, and so can go for um, you know, increasing uh, any other necessary personnel that you need for your clinic. Um, and so, you know, billing to make sure that your clinic is functional um, is as important as making sure that we're capturing um, revenue for ourselves. And then next slide. 
so global surgical services um bob did an amazing job of talking about all the modifiers and the surgical services so i'm not going to spend a whole long time on this um or going through um you know modifiers but just a quick run through of um global services um it basically encompasses any pre-op care that you need for the patient um so it assumes a single um evaluation and management service which includes the pre-op um, history and physical and i'm just putting down the caveat there that um, when the decision for surgery has previously been made and so i can talk about a time when you may be able to bill um, for the um you know for a pre-op visit essentially um, it includes the day of surgery care which is um you know, obviously the procedure being for, uh, performed, um, installing local infiltration, positioning the patient, um, completing your documentation and the orders, talking with your family or um, with other providers that are being involved um, in the procedure. Um, and then post-op care, um, and again, it includes the hospital care, so rounding on the patient, discharging the patient, and your follow-up um, office visits for the global period and we'll talk a little bit about the global periods so different surgeries have different global periods um, and it it depends on whether it's a, a minor or a major um, procedure typical global periods for minor procedures are up to 10 days um, and typical global periods um, for major procedures are 90 days which means if you see the patient for a routine you know post-op visit um, you know, 87 days after you've performed um, the surgery, that's still covered under the global visit. Um, and in terms of post-op care, that includes, you know, seeing the patient for the emergent, uh, for the evaluation um, in the office and going through any um, pathology or lab results. Um, it does not include um, going over um, follow-up plans, and we'll discuss that later. Um, so next slide. So um, pre-op uh, surgical services that are excluded, um, medical stabilization prior, prior to pre procedure. So if you have a patient that you're seeing for abnormal bleeding um, and she has anemia and you're you know, seeing her, you bring her in to discuss medication to stop her anemia, um, that would be separately billable outside of the global. Um, and then we talked about that sometimes the um, pre-op can be billed during a global, and that's basically when the decision for surgery has not been made. And so I'm gonna give you an example. Again, abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, the patient comes in for an office visit for abnormal bleeding, you start doing your workup, you order your lab tests, you order the ultrasounds, um, or they may have come with um, that information already and you're discussing the different options for them. You talk about, you know, surgery is an option. You could potentially do an ablation. You could potentially do a hysterectomy, depending on what's going on with the patient. Um, you give the patient information there. They haven't made that decision um, at that um, office visit. They may send you a message or give you a call and say, hey, I would like to go ahead for surgery. You put the order in, um, but you bring them back to the office. Um, you can actually bill for that because the decision for surgery had not been made during an office visit. Um, you should not. Um, document your office visit that day as a pre-op. It should doc be documented as a follow-up visit. You should say that the patient is here to discuss, um, you know, the the decision to to undergo surgery. You can absolutely complete um, consent forms at that date. You can absolutely counsel the patient on what the surgery um, involves, um, but that is separately billable as an EM visit. And then any diagnostic tests or procedures prior to hysterectomy. So, for example, if you're, um, you know, deciding to take a patient to the OR to do a hysterectomy or a ablation, and you need to do an um, endometrial biopsy to ensure no malignancy before, um, that is billable separately, um, even if even if it's within that global period. Um, so, next slide and um, excluded intraoperative services, um, and. You know, there's a lot of information and Medicare, unfortunately, has some very specific rules and I'm, we don't have time to go through all of them today. Um, but any complications that are happened during um, the surgery. So, for example, you know, the patient has um, a bladder laceration during the surgery um, and you um, repair that bladder laceration yourself. You can bill separately for that laceration repair um for private insurers or for medicaid um, not if they're medicare 
um, that's considered bundled in for Medicare. Um, and then regional anesthesia provided by the surgeon. So pudendal and paracervical blocks are regional anesthesia. You're um, injecting nerves in order to um, anesthetize a region of the body. Um, and if that is the, um, the anesthesia that's provided for that patient, um, you can bill separately for those. And then um, next slide for post-op. Um, so again, Medicaid and most private insurers um, will likely cover um, complications so during the global. So for example, um, you know, again, we'll use the, the bladder laceration and that's a delayed recognition and you um, take that patient back to the operating room um, and you repair it, that is considered a, um, um, a covered service. And just with a caveat that again, Medicare has some specific rules, they will only cover treatment if it's um, a complication that requires treatment in the operating room. Um, so say uh, the patient develops an infection, um, you, can, you can bill for that as long as they're not Medicare, um, even if it's within the global period. Um, treatment for other unrelated um, conditions. And you can still bill even if it's treatment for a condition that was discovered during the surgery. So for example, if a patient comes in and you do a laparoscopy for pelvic pain and she's found to have endometriosis, um, the follow-up visits uh, for a separate E&M where you see them and you may discuss the endometriosis, what it is, you discuss treatment options and prescribe treatment would be separately billable as an E&M code. Um, and then treatment for any other unrelated conditions as well. Uh, so you know, if, if the patient comes in and has a breast disorder that's completely separate from what you were operating on, um, you should um, still bill for that separately. That's even if they're within the global period. The next slide. Um, so again, common global periods, we said the minor procedures are typically um, a zero day global or a, um, to a 10 day global. The exception for some reason is cold knife cones have a 90 day global. Um, and if you're doing a DNC for specifically for a um, miscarriage management or for a molar pregnancy, um, they do have a 90 day global related to that period. If you're doing a DNC for abnormal bleeding in a gynecological patient, um, that is a 10 day global. Um, most uh, diagnostic labs or like a simple salpingectomy um, has a 10 day global. Um, interestingly, um, hysteroscopies, all hysteroscopies, other than Eshaw, which is now no longer on the market, has a zero-day global. Um, and so um, your hysteroscopic procedures, um, anything that you do there um, that needs follow-up um, is separately billable. Um, for major procedures, any surgical laparoscopies that you do other than um, excision of the adnexa um, is a 90-day global. And the next slide. Um, so this is something that's changed recently, um, is that Medicaid as of 2000, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, for most states, um, Medicaid and private payers will now cover prophylactic salpingectomies. Um, so previously, there's a, a CPD code for um, a laparoscopic sterilization, um, which would be, um, you know, your floppy rings or um, your, if you're fulgurating the tubes or if you're using Filshi clips. Um, and that's the 58670 code. Um, if you're doing a salpingectomy for um, ovarian cancer risk reduction for future, um, then it used to be that we would have to bill under the, um, the sterilization if we were purely doing the, um, the salpingectomy for sterilization. Um, now Medicaid um, will bill a uh, salpingectomy code um, and the 58661 is the laparoscopy. Um, the 58700 is an open code. So if you're doing like an open hysterectomy or something, um, sorry, not the hysterectomy because that's included, the tubes are included at a hysterectomy. But if you're doing an open procedure for something else and you take out the tubes at the time, um, you can bill a salpingectomy code with the diagnosis for um, sterilization now. And next slide. Um, preventive health visits, um, 
included is a comprehensive um, his, history and physical. Um, and that assumes that the patient is coming in for preventive health care. So there's no chief complaint or a um, history of presenting illness required. Um, due to the Affordable Care Act, preventive services um, that are recommended by USPSTF um, or um, the uh, immunization panels or the Women's uh, Preventative Services um, uh, Task Force uh, are all co are covered under the preventive health visit codes. Um, any chronic stable um, problems that are not uh, significant enough to require extra work are considered covered. Any minor problems that don't require extra work. So if a patient says to you, um, you know, hey, I I see this mole, and you're like, yeah, no, it's it's nothing that you need to wor worry about. I I don't think it's anything that needs to be worried um, worked up. That is considered covered under those preventive healthcare. Um, any vaccines for appropriate um, age and risk factors, um, refills for ongoing prescriptions that are stable. Um, so that would be your refills for, um, you know, birth controls or for um, hormone therapy. And in all age groups, um, the preventive health visits covers nutrition, counseling, um, health, um, healthy weight counseling, um, injury prevention, um, documentation of um, alcohol, tobacco or drug use, um, sexual behavior and STD prevention, um, brief contraceptive um, immunizations, and then like we said, any screening tests um, that you order, such as um, uh, diabetes screening, um, would be covered under the preventive health visit. Um, next slide. Um, and so depending on the age range, um, so cancer screening, so uh, breast cancer um, discussions, um, referrals for mammograms, uh, referrals for colonoscopy, if they're greater than 45, are considered covered. Um, osteoporosis screening, if they're aged um, greater than 65. Domestic violence screening is considered covered. Um, and chlamydia screening, um, chlamydia gonorrhea screening, if they're under the age of 25, um, is considered um, covered uh, because those are all part of the uh, recommended preventive um, things. Um, go to the next slide, please. So what's not included, I think that this is something that there's a lot of back and forth on about, you know, if a patient comes in and they, it's the, oh, by the way, I want to talk about this. Um, again, um, under the preventive visit, it was anything that was not significant um, or that was ongoing was co um, covered. If there's a um, significantly worst, worsening existing problem or if there's a new problem that needs to be worked up, um, those are considered outside of the preventive healthcare and those should be um, included as a, a separate E&M visit. Um, and so, for example, if the patient, you know, has heavy periods, but all of a sudden she started having really abnormal periods um, and you're working up, you may be referring from the ultrasound, you may be recommending, you know, thyroid testing or um, coming in for a biopsy, um, you should do a separate E&M code for that. Now you need to have your documentation for that separate from the documented preventive health um, visit. Um, so it shouldn't be included in the body of the, the, the note. It should be a separate um, note. And you are going to be reimbursed separately because some of the things that are included um, in a normal office visit, such as rooming the patient and reviewing the history, you've already done as part of the preventive health visit. Um, but you should still um, bill for that separately. Um, and you should always attach the modifier to the preventive health visit. If it's a new patient to you and you're working up a significant health problem, you want to bill a new preventive visit and then establish E&M because the preventive code is um, typically worth more than the E&M visit code for that type. Um, if you identify a problem during the exam, so if you find out that the patient has a significant prolapse um, and you're working them up for that and you're documenting um, and you're talking about different types of um, uh, you know, pessaries or surgical treatments um, that is separately identifiable um, and billable too. And next slide. And I've just included this because I think that it is, um, you know, I believe that I'm ethically responsible for informing the patients that they may have um, 
a charge for an additional service. Um, you know, patients are aware that the preventive visits are typically covered. And so when they come in for their preventive visit, they might want to unload all of these other things to, to um, you know, avoid having copays. Um, so this is an example of um, the handout that we give patients um, at the beginning of a preventive visit, just to inform them um, that what is a preventive visit, what is not a preventive visit, and um, why they may be billed um, additionally. Um, next slide. Um, so as of, I believe it's last year, yeah, 2021, COVID is, um, I have no idea what day it is. Um, so 2021 was last year. Um, the um, evaluation and management office codes have been updated. Um, and so this is just the updated. It's now, you're not having to do the full, you know, HPI medical decision-making and a full exam. Um, the codes are determined, the complexity codes are determined based on the medical decision-making or by the total time. Um, and the total time um, is the um, provider time on the date of service. And so that includes total face-to-face -face time. It includes chart review. It includes performing the exam. It includes um, counseling the patient, ordering medications, testing, referring and communicating with other professionals. It includes documenting, um, and those are all on the date of service. Um, and so time can be used uh, to select a code level. Um, and, you know, as going back to that slide that we referenced earlier, where, um, you know, women spend more time with patients, um, I think that this is one of the ways in which um, we are missing out on actually billing for our services um, by not billing on time. Um, and you can also use time to select a code, even if the counseling wasn't the primary component of the visit. If you had to do a lot of coordination of care um, for this patient, regardless of the amount of time that you spent counseling them, as long as it's face-to-face, -face, uh, sorry, as long as it's on the date of service, even if it's not face-to-face -face time, um, that's included in your um, overall code for your um, evaluation and management service. Um, next slide. And I know that we're coming to the end and I just have a couple of slides left. Um, so this one, again, not all payers will cover pap smear collection. Um, and I know that ACOG doesn't agree with this, um, but I do not think that a pap smear, especially as most women do not need an annual pap smear anymore, I do not believe that pap smear collection um, is a essential part of a women's health primary visit anymore or preventative care visit um, because I'm, I'm counseling them about a lot of other things. Um, you can only bill for a screening pap, you can't bill for a diagnostic pap. And again, not all, all um, payers will cover for this. Um, depression screening can be billed for up to four times a year. It's designed for screening um, population. Uh, population. It needs to be with a formal standardized screening tool. Um, I use the um, ICD-10 code of Z1331, which is depression screening. Um, the, you can bill for a wet mount collection. Again, this is not provider um, RVUs, but it is reimbursement for your clinic. Pessary fitting is a procedure code. Um, it has a CPT. If you see the patient for a prolapse, um, you document your counseling, the patient decides to have a pessary. Um, you should um, bill both your EM for the counseling and for the discussion and for the office visit and the pessary fitting code um, as a separate visit. Um, or you can bring them back if you bring them back to fit them for a pessary on a separate day. Um, you should bill that as a procedure visit. Next slide. Um, so these are specific um, preventive, preventive um, counseling um, that you may do at the time of another visit, not a time of a preventative visit. So you can't bill these like for a, um, uh, for a preventive you know, health or for a well woman exam. But if a patient comes in um, with you know, bleeding and you're, you notice that she smokes and you spend time talking to her about the reasons why she shouldn't smoke so that you can prescribe like an oral contraceptive uh, um, example, um, that you can, as long as you document that you've counseled them about like smoking cessation, um, you can bill that as a separate reimbursable um, CPT code. Um, for substance use and abuse counseling, um, again, if you use a structured screening questionnaire um, and you do a brief intervention, you can, um, uh, you know, bill for that. Um, and you can bill preventive medicine services, which are when people have like no symptoms or problems. 
um, when greater than 50% of the face-to-face -face time is counseling, um, you need to document your um, impressions, recommendations, um, that you've discussed the risks and benefits of management and treatment options, risk factor reduction, and any education that you've done. So these might be things like, um, you know, weight management uh, for our morbidly obese patients. Um, these may be things like dietary counseling, um, that you can um, build these uh, separately and you can actually build them in addition to your E&M service um, if you're seeing them for something unrelated as well. And next slide. Um, and we all know um, those patients that come in with a stack of records this thick that you have to review um, and you can bill for that. And um, so for um, prolonged services without patient contacts, this is um, for times when you're reviewing records for a patient um, and it's before or after direct patient care. So it wouldn't be um, included in the prolonged services um, when you're seeing those patients um, on the same day. So this is you're reviewing the records the day previously, you're going through. Um, it can also be utilized if you're having prolonged communication with other health professionals. You have to document this in the medical record. You have to document the start and stop time. Um, the time does not need to be contiguous. So for example, if you're reviewing records for 15 minutes and then you spend 15 minutes talking to a consulting physician, um, you can document that 30 minutes. Um, and um, you can, if you're billing for more than um, uh, uh, 74 minutes, um, you can bill for each additional 30 minutes. You have to do at least 15 minutes into that time to um, bill that additional code. But again, this is a way I think that we're, you know, very commonly missing um, uh, these services, these prolonged patient services. And the next slide. Um, this is just where to get some additional resources. Um, ACOG Coding has um, webinars that you can watch on coding, um, including one on ultrasound services for how to document on ultrasound services. It has um, quick coding guides, it has frequently asked questions, has desktop reference material, including, you know, kind of the medical decision making for your um, evaluation and management codes. Um, I love going to the um, AAPC, which is the prof coding professionals website. Um, it has a little like uh, RVU calculator so you can see what RVUs you've been missing. Um, um, and, you know, now that you started billing better, um, ACOG also, um, you can download, um, there's either a, a print version or an electronic version of um, the CPT coding. And so you can see everything that's um, involved and excluded in global um, billing periods. And next slide. Um, I just put this in here so that it's available for you afterwards. I'm not going to go through it, but this is um, the emergency um, management codes and um, with some examples of, um, you know, different presenting symptoms um, of how you would build those in our um, OBED. And then next slide. Um, and this is, um, I'm sure, I think it was in the New York Times, I know it's definitely been on NPR recently, um, that this, uh, the, there's been plenty of studies that have shown that um, patients do better um, when they are cared for by a female physician. Um, this is across primary care, cardiac care, surgical care, uh, procedural care. Um, and in the first study on the left that was published in JAMA, um, in Medicare populations, this actually translated to 32,000 less deaths per year when they were treated by a female physician. Um, and I came across um, this quote of one of the primary authors, um, uh, Dr. Jar's uh, wife, when he shared um, this information with her, um, her response was, well, of course, what did you expect? Um, and I, I just think that this goes to show that female physicians are more likely to practice evidence-based medicine. We're more likely to stay within guidelines. We're more likely to communicate more effectively. Um, and so we should be valuing ourselves um, and billing appropriately for what we're doing because we are making a difference in patients' lives. And the next slide. That's it. Oh, Dr. So, Grabinski, what a great presentation. Thank you so much. We only have a couple of minutes for questions, but there were a couple here that um, showed some confusion. So one question is, can you clarify if a hospitalist triages and then admits the patient, can they bill for both things or only for the admission? 
uh, only for the admission. It, it has to be a separate person. So imagine if it's in the emergency room, right? Your emergency room physician is seeing the patient in the emergency room and you're admitting the patient. You can both bill, but if an emergency doctor is admitting the patient, they're only providing that one service for the patient. They've only evaluated the patient once. Yeah, and I should clarify that even if it's two separate hospitalists, for example, one does triage, yes. one does the admission, if they're both in the same group, that counts as one person, not as two. Yeah, yeah. It has to be separate tax IDs. Or separate so another groups. question. We have many patients who stay in the hospital for four days post-C-section. They're not complicated, but they know that the insurance will pay for it. Can we bill for the fourth day patient care, even if they have no particular reason to be in the hospital? I don't think you can. Um, I agree with you. A, uh, you really yeah, can't. You don't yeah, have a medically I, justifiable reason for them to be there. And unfortunately, you can't show evaluation and management services and medical no. decision-making related to that visit. So I agree with I you. Wanna know where, I want to know where the hospitals are, though, that they have space to keep <laughs> patients that long. <laughs> Most um, of our patients question, after two days. <laughs> for surgery, can you bill all paracervical blocks or only if it's the main anesthetic for the procedure? Only if it's the main anesthetic. Right. And, and often they still won't pay for it. So Medicare won't Often pay they for still won't pay for it. Medic Medicare won't pay for it. Um, and this is an ongoing, you know, argument that I have. Um, no question. Which is, yeah, it's. Why it's, is Medicare not you're paying providing, for it? Exactly. Right. Yeah. If you're the providing primary anesthesia, you should be billing for it. Um, so but yeah, not all insurances will cover. Can you bill for Cytotec IUPC if it's placed by the resident and a note is co-signed by the attending? Yes, you can, because you're billing for services um, that you are supervising. Right. You're responsible for that care. Yeah. And hopefully discussing the management of the resident. And so ultimately, you are the attending responsible. And then a subsequent question, what if the IUPC is placed for labor management and not for amnio infusion? No, it can't be um, billed for that situation because you're not using it. My understanding is you're not using it um, for, um, you know, kind of a procedure, and it's a procedure code that you're billing. Right. Um, can you bill depression screening when it's done at the time of an annual preventive exam? Um, that's a great question. Some payers will reimburse for this. Some payers will not reimburse for this. Um, in my institution, we are billing it because we found that most of our payers are reimbursing for it. Um, but you have to do a um, standardized depression screen, whether it's a PHQ-2, PHQ-9, um, the GAD-7, something like that. And it has to be documented. Right. Yep. So if placing a Bakri balloon, would that require a procedure note from your delivery note? Yes. Um, so you, you want to, you know, basically document, you know, what you did. Um, why you did it, like how much you filled it with, um, whether you used any packing, um, and and then you would um, bill for that code. Okay, so one last question, because we're, we're running up on the hour. How would you bill for an annual exam during the global billing postdoc period? Do you bill as a separate annual or use any spe specific modifiers? So um, that would be, um, so there is a modifier to bill outside of the global, and I don't remember it, Bob, you probably know it, but that's it's not 24. considered. Yeah. 24, yeah. yeah. Um, that's not considered um, parts related to the surgery. If you're seeing somebody for an annual visit, um, that's completely separate from what you did for the surgery, so that would be billable separately. Right. So I think these are great questions, and um a great presentation. So thank you very much, Dr. Grabinski. And I understand that I ran over, I talked too much and I apologize. So if anybody has any follow-up questions, um, I'm happy to answer those follow-up questions. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. The OBG Resident Core is a website designed for residents by residents and recent former residents. Everything we wish we had in our hands and brains during our time during residency. 
mobile-friendly, easily searchable, and quick reads. Catch up between patients or meetings with your chief resident. The OBG Resident Corps is free for all residents and includes an OBG First subscription. To sign up for the Corps, visit www.obgconnect.com forward slash core, C-O-R-E, to sign up today. <laughs>